Welcome to Journey in the Word with Pastor Randy Mosher of Calvary Chapel, the Cumberland Valley. We are located in Hagerstown, Maryland. Please join us every weekday as our pastor takes us verse by verse through a book of the Bible. Today, we're picking up in the Gospel of Luke, where the writer emphasizes the ministry that Jesus had to the poor and hurting and our need for a Savior. All of these being validated by the Old Testament prophecies about Christ. So if you're able, grab your Bibles and join us as we continue our journey in the Word. She stands up in the middle of prayer meeting and just begins to say, I love Jesus with all my heart. Oh, I love Jesus with all my heart. How oh, I love Jesus with all my heart. And before it's over, the, the entire congregation is weeping and crying and repenting. And before long, it's spreading out the doors. It spreads through Wales. It spreads through Great Britain and, and then into Europe and then across the Atlantic into the United States. During the Welsh Revival, during the Welsh Revival, the bars shut down, the brothels shut down, workplaces shut down. Not because the workers refused to come work, because the workplaces just shut down so everybody could go to church. They all went. But here's the point. It started with a seemingly insignificant witness and event. It wasn't something massive. It wasn't a huge crusade. Look, there's nothing wrong with the huge crusades. But it isn't what started it. It started very simple from a humble little girl. It started from a couple of humble people for the Jesus movement and a Bible study. Look, we sometimes think it takes big spiritual events to have an effect, but, 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 but it doesn't always require that. Sometimes it's simple, just like this. Elizabeth and Zacharias being faithful to the Lord and the Lord now using them to cause people to take a second look spiritually and awaken to what's going on. I just can't help but to think that the Lord wants to do this again in the time in which we live. Don't look to the church. Don't look to the events. Maybe God wants to spark to simply be you. To simply be you and your faithful witness to people as you walk out your calling in the Lord. As you're faith and obedient to his word in your life. Maybe he just wants to use you. And trust me, you're not too insignificant to be used by the Lord for this purpose. Third, note this. The people kept them in their hearts. They kept what they were talking about, these events that they were seeing, they stored them in their hearts. In other words, they not only talked about and discussed everything, they stored it all up and they kept on meditating on it. That's the idea behind it. They kept on meditating on it. Now, this is a really good thing because it implies two important things. Number one, it tells us that the impact of this event was lasting. The impact was lasting. You know, far too often spiritual events can impact us, but, but only for a short time. You know, we, we're excited when it happens. Maybe it's a great message we hear at church, or maybe we go to a conference or to, a, you know, some other event, and, and we get all fired up. But then as time passes, we think less and less about it. And before long, we don't even remember it. Sometimes it happens. I've even heard people say it here. You know, they were impacted by a message. It moves them. It impacts them for a short season. But then it's forgotten. It is so much better 
when things get stored in our hearts in a way that even though the initial excitement of the message or, or the event, it might die down, there's still a slow smoldering burn going on inside of our hearts as we continue to chew upon it and reflect on it. And look, it doesn't mean we're even cognizant of it all the time. You know, I know this from building fires in my firing at my campground. At night, I'll throw a little bit of water and so on to the fire, and I'll say, okay, fire's out. We can go in. And my wife will say, uh-uh, the fire's still burning. I'm like, I threw some water on there. She'll kick some stuff over, and there's still some smoldering embers. That's all it takes. But that's what the Lord wants to do. It is so much better when we store things that have occurred in our hearts in such a way that when this initial excitement dies down, there's still this smoldering burn that the Lord can keep moving as we continue to chew upon it and reflect on it. It also tells us, too, besides that, that that they didn't understand everything. The fact that they were storing, it tells us that they didn't understand everything, but that they still knew it was important, and that they stored it away and pondered it all with the expectation that as time passed, things would become clearer. Mary, we're going to find Mary on multiple occasions doing the same thing in our study of the Gospels. When Jesus is born, she's going to store it in her heart. As he grows, she's going to store these things in her heart. It implies she doesn't understand it all, but she knows God's doing something, and she's going to hang on to it until it all makes sense. Now, I know that I'm careful about saying you, but I know for me, I oftentimes feel like I need to understand everything right away. I need to understand it all. And, and the things I don't have a tendency to understand, I have a tendency to discard. Look, instead of discarding things, it would be so much better for us if, it, it, to do what these people were doing. That we would just, instead of discarding it when it doesn't make sense to us or we don't understand all, that we would do what Mary did, that we would tuck it all away in our hearts and we would just ponder it, we would meditate upon it, we would think about it. Because as we would do that, we might find that God will open doors to our understanding in his timing. You know, I often tell people that in regard to personal Bible study or listening to Sunday teachings. You're not always going to understand everything. We're going to move through the scriptures, and, and, and you might not understand everything the day you hear it. In fact, you might hear a message and, and study a passage in your Bible, even in your quiet time, and it's not going to make sense to you. Or you might read and say, well, that doesn't apply to me. I don't see the connection for me right now. Look, not everything that you do understand will impact you at the moment. You know, not everything that you read is going to be for you right now. But that doesn't mean it's unimportant and that you should discard it. Carry a notebook, write things down that you don't understand or that it might not seem relevant to you at the moment, and then go back over it periodically, prayerfully thinking about it, because as you do this, you might find that God in his timing will begin to open things up more fully to you. I cannot tell you the number of times people have even told me here in a message that, man, when you taught that six months ago, I didn't connect with that at all. I just didn't see anything in that for me. But today, man, the Lord has just brought that same message back out, and, and it was for me, it's, but it's for now. Look, it's about the Lord's timing. It's, he's not revealing everything to us at once, but it doesn't mean we should get rid of it. Ponder it, store it up in your heart, and, and meditate on it, and, and prayerfully take it before the Lord. And in His timing, when you're ready and it's His time, He's going to open it up to you, and you will get it, and it will impact you. 
And that's what these people are doing. So these three things, I find them fascinating. The sayings were discussed through the whole region. That the fear came on them, you know, at that simple event. And then finally, they kept these things in their hearts. They stored them up and they pondered them. May we do the same thing. Praise the Lord. Well, look on at verse 67. Now we pick up. John is born, and, and, and Zacharias, it tells us now, his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying. And so now he's going to give this prophetic utterance of praise. It's going to speak to his son John, but it's also going to be about the Messiah. In fact, he begins that way. He says this in verse 68, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Wow. John knows what all of this is about. Jesus isn't even born yet. John. Yeah, I keep saying John. Forgive me. Zacharias. Zach, John, John has been born, but Jesus hasn't. But in this moment of even looking at his son, John, Zacharias knows that this is all the unfolding plan of God for God's redemption. He knows that. He sees that, that God is bringing about his plan of redemption. And he says in verse 69, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. He knows that, that this baby that Mary's carrying is going to be the Messiah even before he's born. Why? Because the Holy Spirit's revealing this to him. He's seeing the connections. He understands when he, when that term, a horn of salvation is being used, he's recognizing that that term, a horn, a horn is, is symbolic of authority and leadership. And he's saying, this is the leadership. This is the authority about salvation that's being raised up. And the connection he makes to his servant, David in the house of David means he knows that this is the Messiah because that's where the prophecies always said Messiah would come from the house of David. So he knows. And he knows it's about the Messiah coming to bring redemption. He says in verse 70, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets who have been since the world began. Wow. He recognizes that the message of redemption began all the way from the beginning. As it says elsewhere in the scriptures, Jesus was slain before the foundation of the world. In other words, God had in his mind the plan of salvation even before man fell in the garden. Does that mean that God caused man, intended for man to fall in the garden? No, he just knew man would. And he already put the plan of redemption in place. The Lamb of God, Jesus, who was slain before the foundation of the world. And all the way back, if you go back into Genesis account, you see the picture of redemption that's being displayed right from the moment when Adam and Eve fall in sin. What happens? They try to cover themselves with vegetation, with leaves, with covering like that. And it's not satisfactory. God then kills some of those very animals that they'd been living around and with, not eating yet, but living around yet. And, and he kills them and he brings the covering that he makes for them from a sacrifice, a bloody sacrifice to cover them, pointing to the sacrifice that would be necessary ultimately that Messiah would bring. We see it again with Abraham and Isaac and, and, and told to take Isaac, his, his son, his only son, and to take him up and sacrifice him after he waited so long. Oh, Abraham takes him obediently to do that. And, and when Isaac turns to him and says, but father, where's the sacrifice? He said, the Lord himself will provide the sacrifice. And that's exactly what the Lord did there and through Jesus, all pointing to speaking of the ultimate redemption that would be found in Messiah. 
And Zacharias now recognizes this, and he says that, that this has been spoken of since the world began. And then he says in verse 71 that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham. And so he knows that the covenant that God made with Abraham wasn't like all the other covenants. It was an unconditional covenant that was being made, not a conditional one. Um, Throughout most of Israel's history, the covenants that we see that God made with his people were if-then covenants. They were conditional. If you do this, then I will do that. But this covenant that he's referring to here was a covenant that God made, an oath which God made with his people, which was one directional. God made it. I'll provide the sacrifice. I'll provide the redemption. I will provide the way. Nothing required on your part except belief, faith, belief. It's all that's required. No work, no expectations other than that. He says, verse 74, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. So many people, you know, good people try to serve the Lord out of fear. They're afraid. They see God as that celestial being with the hammer and the axe in his hand, just waiting to get him. And, and maybe if I do enough good works, if I do all this, it'll, it'll somehow take that, that punitive nature away from him. And, but, but here he says, you know, in this covenant, it's going to free us from that. Why? Because nothing that God is requiring is dependent on us. It's been done for us. He's doing it. We don't have to serve him in fear in the sense being spoken of here. And yet we fearfully serve him in a different way. We fearfully serve him out of respect now, not to earn or to get out from underneath punishment, but we serve him because he's done this for us. What freedom there is in that. What great freedom there is in knowing that we get to serve the living God and we do it simply because, simply because. Not to merit favor or to get out from under condemnation. That's already been taken care of through Jesus. If it depended on us, we'd be in a lot of trouble. You see, the fear that we have of God comes because of our understanding of law. Even if we don't understand it, there's a part of us that does. There's most people know Ten Commandments. And yet we couldn't keep those. But why was the law given? It was given so that we would know that we couldn't meet God's expectations that were placed before us. And so man was fearful, but this covenant removed our fear. It was intended to remove our fear. And and Zechariah sees it. He says in verse 75, in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. So we, we get to serve him without fear, but we also get to serve him in holiness and righteousness. Well, how can we do that? How can we do that? We know we fall short. We know that. Boy, I'm going to tell you, I look at my own life and I know, man, I sin. I sin. I don't want to sin, but I sin. I'll set my heart not to sin, but I'm going to sin. (laughs) I don't have to sin, but I sin. (laughs) And yet here, Zacharias is saying to the people and, and to us that we get to serve the Lord in holiness and righteousness. Well, where can that come from if it's not coming from us? It's coming from the righteousness and the holiness that's imputed to us when we placed our faith in Jesus Christ. It is the righteousness of Christ. It is the holiness of Christ that is given to us, that covers us, that when God looks at me, he doesn't see Randy Mosher, that human being who just blew his temper at somebody unrighteously but he sees the righteousness of Christ. Now, does it make it right for me to do those sinful things? No, it does not. 
In fact, it should propel me to a different way of living. But there's a difference between what God is seeing of what's been imputed to me and in what I am at times. In holiness and righteousness, covered by the, by the work of Christ, his righteousness. And now you and I get to, to learn to walk out that holiness and righteousness. Will we attain it in this life? I wish we would, but I know we won't. But I do know this. For all of us, I hope our heart is that on the day that we would stand before the Lord, not that it would merit us any special favor, but that it could be our offering to him, just a free will offering to him of love, that we would be able to look at our life and say, you know what, I'm not what I should be yet, but I sure am not what I used to be. That he's grown me. I've learned to walk out my salvation. I'm learning to walk in holiness. I'm learning to walk in righteousness. Not because I have to, but because I can. But because I can. And by the way, he's empowered us so that we can through his Holy Spirit. In holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And you, child, verse 76, will be called the prophet of the highest. For you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins. He says he knows John's calling. John's born, he's looking at his own child, John, and he's saying, this is going to be your calling, to go before the Messiah. You're going to make his way straight. You're going to go out, and God's going to use you to prepare the hearts of people for what Jesus will do. Verse 78, through the tender mercy of our God, with which the day spring on high has visited us, to give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. John's calling. Jesus came to do these very things. And Zacharias recognizes it. Verse 80, so the child grew and became strong in spirit and was in the deserts till the day of his manifestation to Israel. And so, of course, we're not getting an account here of John per se, as we do in some of the others. But we do know that John, of course, is, is, is living like a prophet of old because he is a prophet of old. He is the last of the old covenant prophets. But he's spanning the gap between the two covenants. He's got a foot in both. And and yet we know from other accounts and later in in the book, we're going to see that this is a guy, man, he's clothed in in skins and, you know, with a belt around his waist. And, you know, he's he's eating honey and locusts. Yeah, there's a diet for you. My aunt used to make chocolate covered grasshoppers. No, thank you. No, thank you. But all of those things depicted him as an Old Testament prophet, and that's what he was. But his call was to make the path straight for the Messiah who was coming. Now let's look at that. Turn to verse 1 of chapter 2. And it says, And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Now we come to the account of Jesus' birth. And the account of Jesus' birth began during the reign of one of the most remarkable men of, of ancient history and during a time of incredible social and national turmoil. Caesar Augustus is the second of the Caesars to rule over Rome, following Julius Caesar, the first ruler. His birth name was Octavian, named after his father, and his grandmother was the sister of Julius Caesar. He was a politically astute young man. 
He was a gifted young Roman, and he came to the attention of his great uncle, Julius, while he was ruling, who eventually adopted him as his son, and he subsequently designated him as an official heir in 45 BC. Now, that was very common amongst the Romans to adopt someone into your family. It was especially common amongst the ruling class. They would adopt someone into the family so that they could put somebody in the line of succession, especially if they felt that the line was kind of weak with some of their own natural-born children. And so Julius, who is the ruler of Rome at the time, first ruler of Rome, he is now adopting in Octavius in 45 BC. And within a year of that adoption, Julius Caesar is murdered. And Octavian rises to power, and he's joined with two other Roman notable leaders by the name of Mark Antony and a guy by the name of Lepidus. And they set up what became known as the triumvirate rule of Rome, the triumvirate rule of Rome. And essentially what that was is that they shared power. They split the rule of Rome three ways between each of them. Each took a section of the empire and and each of them ruled simultaneously. Now for decades, the entire Mediterranean region of the world was filled with wars and violence. But under the triumvirate rule, These became years of bloody and brutal fighting for power and money in Rome and in the Roman provinces. So things went from bad to even worse. But it wasn't getting worse because of all the wars with all the other nations in large part. It was just because of their own struggles with each other. And eventually Octavian and Anthony grew in power and they pushed Lepidus out of the picture. And even though Octavian's sister married Antony, for 13 years, these two Roman leaders existed as rivals until finally in 31 BC, they faced off for a year. They had huge armies that assembled and positioned themselves. Anthony, with the help of a famous Egyptian ruler by the name of, if you've seen the movies, Cleopatra, Cleopatra. So Anthony, with the help of Cleopatra, they they, they assemble a a 500 warship armada, 100,000 foot soldier army, along with with 12,000 cavalry, uh, cavalry, sorry, cavalry, cavalry, which Octavian then answers with 400 warships, 80,000 infantry and 12,000 horsemen. And finally, Octavian, who holds the better strategy and and has a more mobile navy, is able to defeat the combined forces of Antony and Queen Cleopatra of Egypt at a battle known the Battle of Actium. And as a result, Octavian becomes the sole ruler of the Roman Empire. He solidifies all the power to himself, and he takes on the title of Caesar Augustus. Now, I hope you know by now that Caesar is not the family name. Caesar was the name of the ruling family, the ruling class. If you came to power in Rome as the ruler of Rome, you took on the name Caesar, just like the Herods did the same thing. So he takes on the name Caesar Augustus. It is into this world, this backdrop, that Jesus Christ was about to be born. God had literally set the table for his birth as the time which Paul speaks of in Galatians 4.4 had come. I love this verse in Galatians 4.4. Paul writes, but when the fullness of time had come, when the fullness of time, if you like to underline, underline that, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. 
You see, Paul says right here in this verse that, that, that the timing of Jesus' birth, it was not an accident. It was not an accident. It was perfectly planned, it was perfectly timed, and the world was perfectly prepared by God himself for this very moment. The fullness of time had come, and it was God who brought it about. It's exactly what Paul says. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. I think Paul's using terms associated with birth. I mean, think about this. A woman carrying a baby, she's pregnant. She gets the point, and we say her fullness of time had come. That means it's time for her to give birth to the baby. Well, Mary's fullness of time had come to give birth to Jesus. But the fullness of the world, the time of the world, the time of the setting of the world had come. The the timing of God's prophetic plan for the world had come for this very moment. And in this moment, it was time for Messiah to be born. Yeah, it was a, a world that was ruled by, by the empire of Rome, and, and, and Israel was a nation under the dominating hand of the puppet family by the name of the Herods. And it was a world filled with moral and social and political intrigue and upheaval and chaos. That was the state of the world. Zguzik points out in his commentary, he says, For decades, the world Augustus lived in and Jesus would be born into, the world of the Mediterranean basin was wrecked by war, destruction, brutality, and immorality. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Journey in the Word, a verse-by-verse teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel of the Cumberland Valley. If you would like to listen to more teachings or find out more information about us, go to www.journeyintheword.org. That's www.journeyintheword.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll tune in for our next episode as we continue our Journey in the Word.